The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so this is one of these rare congressional races that I, I think is somewhat right across the country because it's Nunez's seat. And uh, yeah, I want to jump right in. Tell me when you started thinking about this race, this has all evolved so fast. You know, it has uh, been an evolution of my thought process. I, I was originally one of these people that, you know, saw the change was needed and that someone was going to come along and do it. And that person was not necessarily me. <laughs> um, and, you know, as, as things have evolved, you know, we went through January 6th and the insurrection and I just got tired of waiting for the change I wanted to see. And, and uh, you know, thought, you know, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. And, you know, politics, I always talk about on the campaign trail, uh, a lot of politicians don't come from working class families like I do. So like my mom, single mom who did her very best, but we struggled with, with, you know, finding affordable rent, uh, bills, paying bills, PG&E, keeping the lights on. And it's really that, that working class representation that I think is absent from our politics now. Um, you know, politics is, is something that is, uh, it's a through line that runs through every, every person. Um, so for me, I talk about, you know, politics is important because it is politicians that decide that decided how much money would be invested in my education. It's those same politicians that decide how much pollution is acceptable in our air and in our water. And so, uh, although people don't like to talk about politics, we don't like to think about politics. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that is, is important and those decisions are going to be made with you at the table or not at the table. So you might as well grab a seat. So first time candidate, have you ever run for anything before? I have not first time candidate have not run for anything before other than, um, I think I ran for vice president in fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that go? No, never mind. Sorry. I, 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 I won that election. Okay. So uh, slightly less, <laughs> slightly lower profile, um, than, than replacing Devin. So, all right, so I want to get the mechanics of this race out because this is confusing. There's a special election and then there's like another normal uh, sort of election on the June ballot. Can, can you just explain to everybody exactly how this is going to work? Yeah, I mean, I barely know it myself sometimes. <laughs> um, so we're having a special election uh, to fill Devin Nunes' abandoned seat um, in the 2020 congressional boundaries so we're still using the the congressional boundaries prior to redistricting and uh, that was california's 22nd congressional district um if no one no candidate is able to get a a majority in the special election that's april 5th then the top two vote getters go on to a um, general election on June 7th, still using those old district lines, mind you. At the same time, simultaneously, June 7th is California's primary date for the new redistricted 
district, which falls in a different district altogether. This would now be California's 21st congressional district with different boundaries that I would simultaneously have to run for also with a primary on the same day as that general election. In and November. Then whoever in wins that puts on to November. So I, I did get lost there. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So I can't imagine how voters are going to handle this. So let's let, let me back up there. So you have the, the special election in the old 22 on April. Yes. 5th. Okay. April 5th. And if no one gets a, a majority, 50% plus one vote, then the top two, am I right so far? The top two will go right. on to June 6th, which right. is our which is our normal primary day. June 7th, but yes, it's a normal but, primary day. Right, our normal primary day. But you will be running in the in in the original 22 still at that point, the original district 22 at that point. Am I right so far? Yes and no. Okay, <laughs> that's where I got lost. So, 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 uh, yes, to the uh, running in the original twenty-two for the general election. Okay. This, uh, I, I guess, what's it called? Special election part two, but in a completely different district for the for the primary election for twenty twenty-two. Okay. So two's a wild, apparently. And that's the 21st. At that and that's point. the 21st. Okay. Yeah. So so I, I think I've got that. So then then I got confused about what was happening with there was another incumbent who switched seats when Nunez. So uh, explain this to me. There's you actually so, have an incumbent running in this new seat. Yes. So Jim Costa, who is is currently serving in Congress as California's um, 16th congressional district um, through redistricting part of his his district was consumed brought into the new 21st congressional district so instead of running in the leftover part of what was previously his, his district he is going to run in the new 21st district it is a heavily democratic district I think uh, 538 had it at uh, a plus 17 democratic district um and so he's decided to make the the switch to run over here which leaves his old district which i believe is now the 13th congress or going forward is going to be the 13th congressional district without an incumbent okay so tell me about the district makeup of both the old 21st and the new 22nd um, in terms of how the party breaks down. In well, the old 22nd, that was, you know, uh, a district, it is a district that does have uh, leans more conservative. Um, so I, there was a, a, a plus five uh, Republican registration um, advantage. Um, and that's why Devin Nunes was able to uh, hang around for as long as he did. Um, with the new congressional districts, part of the, the conservative area that is being, that was removed from Devin Nunes's old district is actually been added to Kevin McCarthy's district. And so it's kind of, it cut out all the, the re registered Republicans and just left a bunch of Democrats really. Um, so it's really great news if you're Kevin McCarthy, 
not that his, you know, district wasn't already heavily Republican, but now I think it's like a plus 30 uh, advantage to him down there. And then the consequence of it is the new 21st is a, a more heavily Democratic district. But but Nunez's old district, the old 22, that was um, not as conservative as I think a lot of people imagined it to be. Uh, they, they would see Devin Nunez doing crazy things and think, oh, this must be nuts. But it, but it, as you said, it was only plus five and it was trending Democratic every year. Isn't that right? Um, we did have a... a, a a little bit of a wave in 2018 mm-hmm. um, and some of those gains were lost in 2020. And I think really what, what the focus of, of the democratic party and the candidates that were uh, running, um, you know, it was, it was this idea that, you know, the district is conservative. So I have to also lean conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so try to get those um, conservative voters who may have been, um, you know, disenfranchised by Trump, and it really didn't address or, or uh, talk to the the real um, liberal base that does exist here in Fresno and in the working class people that live here in Fresno. Um, and so that's what you know my campaign is focused on is tapping into to those folks because really a lot of the statistics of Fresno, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, plus five Republican registration. Um, that's not a whole whole lot to overcome. People have overcome, overcame, you know, bigger registration disadvantages. Um, it's turning now voters and, and having that message of of earning people's vote that I think was really lost um, in the last couple of cycles. So um, I want to ask you about several of the issues in the race, but but first let's talk about. How, I'm curious how you handle the Nunez stuff because, I mean, you're you're running to replace a guy who's so notorious, did so many crazy things. How do you, how do you handle this on the trail? Do you, do you talk about him or do you, does it not, is it not relevant because he's gone? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's relevant in the sense that you, you want to kind of compare what we've, what we've had, the experiences that we have had with representation, with a newer vision. And so for us here, uh, just the, the, the bare minimum, job of being a representative is to uh, listen to your constituents and meet with your constituents, you know, have that, that confer. Um, and we haven't had a, a public town hall forum with our congressional representative in over a decade. Uh, he was on the record saying, you know, I don't actually, I'm not beholden to my constituents. I, I'm beholden to the people that have voted for me. And that sort of representation, you, you have to really contrast yourself and say, you know, even if I don't agree with you on policy, uh, I'm still going to, to, you know, work on your behalf. It's my responsibility to represent everybody to say, you know, maybe I'll take a vote that someone disagrees with. Well, my, my job is to come back and explain the votes that I made. And at the end of the day, people could say, you know, I agree with you. I, I, I may not agree with you on how you voted, but I understand and, and, you know, keep doing that going forward, giving me some understanding. Or they're going to say, you know, it was a line too far and I won't vote for you again. But that's the job. So I want to ask you about January 6th for a few reasons. One, Nunez, I, I 
think had a big role in inciting it. And two, it's still a real live issue in Congress as to how the January 6th committee is going to proceed and what we're going to investigate and what documents they're going to get and all, and all that kind of stuff. So, so let me just start the big, big picture. Um, what do you think happened on January 6th? I had to take a breath here. Because I, th I think a lot of things happened. I think, you know, for all the differences people try to highlight between um, the right and the left, I think that people uh, are, are really kind of fed up with the status quo. And that gave a whole lot of space and air um, for them to be manipulated with beliefs that they already have. Um, this this thought that you know my vote doesn't matter my vote doesn't count is prevalent in in you know all throughout our society but i think for me it was really kind of egregious having elected members of congress as well as the president himself uh go along with this idea that you know your vote was was stolen from you that you you did vote and i did win and that it was taken from you um is a very powerful message and i think it was a a, a spark um in a powder keg that really kind of we saw the explosion on january 6th um, and my biggest fear now is that all the safeguards that we had in place of, of, well, I won't even say safeguards, the people with integrity that protected our election, um, who were, I granted, members of, of the president's party who stood up to him to say, you know, this is not right. Uh, we don't do this. Our elections are safe. They've been proven to be safe. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I can't find you 11,000 votes or whatever it was, um, that those people are systematically getting removed. And we have subsequently found out that a lot of our uh, uh, democratic safeguards are really just precedent and there's no actual rules or laws that it was just like, no, no one's ever going to come around so egregious that they would break this standing. And my biggest fear is that, you know, th we are quietly replacing the people that had integrity, that were safeguarding our elections, that now if, if God forbid happens again in a situation where we have a contested election and now Kamala Harris is in a position on January 20th, 2025, to where she has to do what Mike Pence, but they wanted Mike Pence to do, that we have two people show up on inauguration day, thinking, both thinking they're presidents. And um, I don't know what happens at that point. Uh, and, and I just, I just want to ask it this way bluntly, because I'm, I'm always shocked at how many politicians are afraid to just say this or answer it. Was it a pro-Trump white supremacist mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? I'll put it this way. Not everyone that was there, that every Trump supporter was a white supremacist. But 
if you're were a white supremacist, you are most likely a Trump supporter. Yeah, this is the old. Uh, what's the old saying? Yeah. Uh, not every Democrat's a horse thief, but every horse thief is a Democrat, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, for, for you know, because there are there are people that that were there legitimately because they feel so. This was like one of the positive. I don't say positive, but this was like one of the. Oh, it's okay. I say positive. I'll give him some credit. This was one of the great things about Trump was that he was able to tap into people um, through social media and through his rallies that he was able to connect with them in a way that has been. Um, that we haven't seen before where it was this like populist wave where he's one of us, right? Not just this, this person on a pedestal, but someone who's, you know, amongst us. He, when you, when he, you know, retweeted something that you tweeted or he messaged you back on, on Twitter when he had a Twitter, you know, you were talking to the president, you know, misspoken, misspelled words and all. And it gave people that connection to where they, they really honestly felt, that the words that he was telling them, they were taking as fact and truth. And, you know, I hear it all the time about, you know, look at the size of his rallies. How could he have lost as if, you know, those are indicators of what happens in a voting booth. But, you know, people, I, let me put it this way. Um, my own mother-in-law is a, a, a Trump supporter. She's a big Trump supporter. She has a black son-in-law. I don't think she's racist, but she's definitely in that vein where if she had the means to go to the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, she probably would have. But I don't think it would be there to, to necessarily say she's a white supremacist. I want to push you just a little bit on this because I, 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 I struggle with people who say I'm pro-Trump and, and I'm not going to give the whole list of things he's done, including, you know, uh, coddling the, the Klan and saying there was good people on both sides of the issue in Charlottesville. And um, just, you know, the, the, the litany of things he has done goes on and on. And I, I, I just want to know, John, that is, is it possible to be pro-Trump, but not accept the things that he says at face value? It's, it's, it, is, is what you're saying that there's a way to sort of like have it both ways where you can support him for being a populist, but not accept everything that he does? Well, I, I, I don't know. This is like getting deep into the woods of like a person's like preference and beliefs. But um, I do think that there's a, a, a definitely a streak of people that are white supremacists that support Trump and do support Trump because they be they believe he's a white supremacist and he's got the dog whistles and the red meat all out there uh, for that particular subset of people. But I also think that there's a, a group of folks who are so that have that are exacerbated by the economic anxieties that they have that they saw this person who they believed who came out and he was talking about things that really his message and Bernie's message were kind of the same. If you look at the, like the 2016 election and what he started talking about, Oh, a healthcare, we're going to cover everybody and it's going to cost you less. And I have, I, I have a plan that's going to do that. I mean, I'm still waiting on it. Here we are, you know, six years down the road, 
haven't got that plan yet. But you know, these these economic anxieties that people were taught were, were feeling and are feeling uh, because this this subset of politicians, this current set of politicians, aren't doing anything really about it for the regular guy, the regular Joe, the working person. And so, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are union members that are were traditionally like Democratic voters. And, you know, they're part of a union and they vote for Trump. I don't necessarily think those those guys are racist or they, you know, there is a, a little bit of the like, you know, anti-cancel culture pushback that they have. But I think it's really because they think that the Republican Party is going to enact these policies that will enable them to be rich like Trump. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. I um, I'm sort of baffled by people on on the left who supported Bernie and then voted for Trump. I, I um, we probably don't have time to unpack this, and I, I don't have a psychiatric degree, um, but I <laughs> but I but I worry I worry about this topic a lot. Actually, um, I, I I think that we have um, in some ways sort of made progress the enemy of the perfect in our party. Um, and I, I, you know, when I, when I hear, well, well, let me ask you, let me just, you know, get, get into that topic with you. Why do you think president Biden is struggling so much in the polls right now? Um, I, I think to me, uh, politics is, is theater politics done well as theater. And so despite us having, you know, uh, record record GDP growth last year, despite us, uh, wages, having wages that increased, um, it doesn't feel like we're winning. It doesn't look like we're winning. Um, and I think that, that that's what a lot of people, you know, they, they, they go with feeling and what have you done? Not what did you do for me, but what have you done for me lately? And there's a lot of things that we could be doing. One of the policy proposals that I have um, and I've, I've talked about with, with some of the other candidates also running for Congress is this idea of not taxing overtime. If people are, you know, we want to be a, a society that says when you work hard and get ahead, you get ahead. How about not taxing people that are working hard to get ahead? Because <laughs> there's nothing worse than when you open, you, you know, you got that, you worked 55 hours, you worked 60 hours this week. And you go to open your check and you go, oh, hey, I got an extra thousand on my gross. And you look at that net amount. And of that thousand, you only get 600 or 550. You know, it deflates you. And, you know, it takes away that argument from Republicans who are always talking about, you know, people know how to spend their money better than uh, the government does. Well, how about we, we you know, give a, a, a tax cut to the working class? Um, I think that there's a lot of proposals that, that can happen that are on the table that Biden can explore with executive executive uh, action um, that we just aren't taking. Uh, so, so tell me, give me some more examples of that. What would you, what would um, the things you would press him on if you were in Congress? You know, the, this is again like looking at, at Trump supporters and what they always talk about with Trump, and he, he kept his promises. He said he was going to do this. 
and he did it not necessarily the wall but you know biden ran on some kind of platform of some kind of student loan forgiveness whether it was fifty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars um he ran on that platform there's a whole subset of people that he could explore for giving ten thousand or fifty thousand or the whole thing um of of student debt that is an immediate relief to people we student loans have been on pause through this entire pandemic and yet not a single uh, bank or uh uh you know, person has felt harm from that action. Um, that's some things that he could start exploring with executive action that I don't think he is. It may be on his radar. Or maybe he's just waiting to do it. He said he was going to do it. And I'm waiting for you. If you say something to me, I grew up, it, it, your word is your bond, right? And so when you make that promise, I expect you to either do it or look like you're trying to do it. And we're not seeing any of that. So you're running for house. And I think that one of the struggles for any house candidate that I'm, I'm sort of always trying to figure out how people balance is um, we can pass a lot in the house as long as we remain in control. Nancy passes a lot of good bills and those bills just go to die over in the Senate. So so what, how, how do you sort of juggle the political realities of dealing with a U.S. Senate that takes 60 votes to pass virtually anything versus what you say to constituents about what you're going to do as, as one member of uh, one body? Well, you know, relationships are the capital of Capitol Hill. And so even now as a candidate, I have been building relationships with other people running for Congress so that when we get to uh, day one, you know, we're stumbling around looking for the coffee maker, maybe. But we have we have a, a group of people who are ready to work together, who have already have ideas and plans in place. Um, I think that I, I don't understand how when people get elected and they have a following or they, they are, you know, are swept up in, in a movement, that that movement just stays with them, especially if we're wanting to pass these sweeping legislative uh, agendas. Um, it takes people to do that. And so, um, you know, my plan is to not only uh, be a representative, but also be that organizer to get people in St. Louis, to get people in, in Charleston, West Virginia, um, you know, to think that they deserve better and hold their representatives accountable. Um, because that's really the reality is our government is set up in such a way that people have less effect. Uh, how do I want to say that? Our government is set up in such a way that, yes, there's a heavy influence of, of, of corporations and money. But at the end of the day, it is the number of people who are willing to, to fight for something that still has a sway on a lot of, of what goes on. And so um, it just, we have to be united in it. And I think the right and the left has done a good job of, both parties have done a really good job of, of increasing the partisan divide, with, whether it is the like identity politics of the left or the like, 
really kind of racist <laughs> policies of, of the right, um, if we keep people not focused on the uh, commonalities that we have um, and the values that we have, that they're just we're just going to be at each other's throats and not the status quo will continue is what I think. Do you think Nancy Pelosi's been a good speaker of the house? Nancy Pelosi is, I will give her credit. I think she's done a wonderful job throughout her career in the job of being speaker. She whips her caucus and keeps her caucus in line. There's no doubt in my mind that we would not have the Affordable Care Act now if Nancy Pelosi was not Speaker of the House back in 2009. Fast forward to now, I think that she has become uh, this polarizing figure where people, yes, she raises a lot of money for, for Democrats, but she also raises a lot of money for Republicans. And we have this like disconnect or this litmus test um, on the left of, of, and I've fallen into it. I had someone tell me yesterday, hey, does, has Bernie endorsed you? I'll give you a thousand dollars. No, but uh, we have a lot of the same policies. Oh, well, uh, when he does, let me know. <laughs> You, you have to have a validator on the left. And I think that Nancy Pelosi um, is not the, not the type of leader that is going to marry the progressive left with the liberal left in, in a fashion to where, like, I, I, like, her foil to me is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has his, his guys all in line. And I don't think Nancy Pelosi necessarily has the ability to, to be that credible figure to the progressive left and marry that in with the liberal left. And I think we need somebody like that going forward if we're going to challenge uh, Republicans in, in these uh, races. So you would not support her for Speaker of the House if you were a member of Congress? I think I would have to see who else is, is running. Um, yeah, that's my I would have to see who, who else is running. Because I think she, I, again, the job of Speaker is, is a hard one. I think she does a really good job at that job of Speaker. Um, but I don't necessarily think that she... Um, you know, there's a lot of people that would vote Democratic, but they don't want to because they don't want Nancy Pelosi to be the, the speaker. And I just don't, I don't understand that. But that's for like a lot of the casual follower people are in the and, mainstream. And the people you're talking about, you mean people on the left when you say that, right? You, you're, is that what yeah, you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, 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 yeah, this, this is, this is where I get a lot of, Heartburn as a, as a Democrat. What, what, what you're articulating is there's a lot of people who are very progressive um, on the left, and what you're and what you're saying is they won't vote for a Democrat for Congress because they think Nancy Pelosi is going to be Speaker of the House. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. 
So Nancy Pelosi is represents the most liberal city probably in the history of the universe, not just not just America. <laughs> um, she, um, she's I, I think it, it would be hard for someone to articulate that she's not a liberal or a progressive. And yet we, we, we have this, um, this sort of uh, thing you've just articulated in our own party where people are willing to, are you suggesting not vote or vote for Republicans because they don't, they don't think she's liberal enough? It would be not vote. And I think that like, you know, she doesn't help herself out. I think she's so like for prime example of this, um, she's come around on the uh, idea of members of Congress not being allowed to trade stocks, which to me is like very like common sense. I'm surprised that hasn't that's not a rule as it is. Um, but like stuff like that, it doesn't the, the again, the imagery of things, especially when you're like, you know, your husband is does trade stocks and uh, he's made quite a pretty penny doing it I, I think just the the it opens up to the narrative of how does a person in public service get to have a net worth north of a hundred million dollars and we, we on the left we have these purity things people I, I I I don't have that kind of that same standard I'm very pragmatic and practical this is what I've been told to, to people where you like yeah, like when you have that group of friends and you're sitting around just having a beer and you're talking about this stuff, that's the imagery in people's minds. So, so I think the answer is Nancy married a really wealthy guy and her family had a lot of money before she ever ran for Congress. But let's let's not let the facts get in the way of a good argument. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I got to say I'm really worried when I hear stuff like that. I'm really worried when I hear that Democrats might stay home because Nancy Pelosi is not liberal enough. Um, I, I think this is an example of where the other side does a much better job than us of rallying around um, pragmatic strategies. And I think, um, you know, I, yeah. I, was, I was once told by a sitting U.S. senator, the, the definition of a Democratic firing squad is a circle. Um, and, and, <laughs> yes. and, and, and that sounds about right to me. So um, it's listen, hard to get people who, who it's hard to get people who are really I mean, really in, in a lot of in desperation in a lot of these situations uh, to to say like incremental incremental uh, progress is still progress. And, you know, I, I've told people in, in um, when I'm out campaigning, that, like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, we got to go together. And um, that is the whole argument is this, you know, from 1955 when the Montgomery boy bus boycott started, it took that long of that civil rights movement till we got a voting rights act. It took almost nine years. True. This work uh, is hard and it's long and it's gonna take some time. Yeah, President Obama used to say better is better. And and I'm not defending the pace of Washington any stretch of the imagine. I think Washington's fundamentally broken. Don't get me wrong. But that I don't think that equates with staying home on Election Day or voting Republican or a Bernie supporter voting for Trump. I think that's I think that's where we jump 
with the shark on the yeah. left. Um, and yeah. so listen, I, you got your work cut out for you. This is a really important race. I think it's really brave what you're doing, getting into it. We need strong new voices in Washington. I think everybody should agree on that. And this is a really short election cycle with the way this is going to play out. So uh, I'm not sure you're going to get a lot of sleep over the next few months, <laughs> but um, I, I, I think what you're doing is really courageous. If people want to read more about your campaign, where can they find out more about you and how to, how to get involved? Uh, if you want to find out more about our campaign, you can go to my website at uh, www.lorinhubbard.com. Uh, you can also follow me on, on social media. Uh, I am tr- really responsive on social media. So, you know, when you're talking to me, uh, it is me behind the screen. <laughs> um, and you can just follow me on Twitter at Lauren Hubbard and then on Facebook um, at Lauren Hubbard or Lauren for Congress. Excellent, well, Lauren. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. We appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you guys. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at, at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. This is the Nation State of Play podcast, exploring the inside political stories driving public policy in California. Powered by Neptune Ops and presented by IVC Media. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org.